Welcome to the Breaking Through in Cybersecurity Marketing Podcast, where we explore the hottest topics in cyber marketing, interview experts, and help you become a better cybersecurity marketer. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Breaking Through in Cybersecurity Marketing. I'm one of your hosts, Gianna Whitfer, here with my stupendorific co-host. <laughs> I wasn't sure where that was going when you said stew. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it's always going somewhere good, Maria. So I'm sorry, my co-host. <laughs> Maria Velasquez. And today we are so excited to have with us an amazing, experienced digital marketing guru guest on Sean Matson. He is head of digital strategy and operations at Checkpoint Technologies. Sean, thank you for being on today. Thank you, Gianna. It was my pleasure. It's my pleasure to be here. All right. Well, we are so excited about today's topic. We're going to cover some of the successes that you've had working at Checkpoint for over several years, which a lot of us in, in marketing you know, sometimes don't even get the opportunity to do. We work somewhere for 12 months and the market moves, things happen. So we're so excited to talk to you today because you've had the opportunity to launch projects, launch new technologies, launch programs, and basically see the fruition happen That's after right. launch. Yeah. Yeah. So first and foremost, tell us what you do, though, at Checkpoint. So heading up digital marketing operations, that can mean a lot of things at uh, a lot of companies. It does mean wearing a lot of hats, right? The primary thing is really just the management of all the digital channels. And that would include, you know, the various websites, include things like outbound, so the marketing automation aspect, digital intelligence, it also includes things like globalization, SEO, and then let's throw in some demand generation just to make it interesting, right? So a lot of things like conversion rate optimization, but you know, in the end, it's really trying to create a very engaging customer experience or prospect experience, right? So it's kind of like owning the front end of a company, right? So owning the user experience. Right. There's another aspect to it, which is the supply chain management of the digital content. So it's that's kind of a internal facing aspect of the organization where your stakeholders are the are checkpoint itself. And so there's a ton of content, digital collateral that's going out to all these digital channels. And that is a supply chain management aspect, right? So that's kind of like a shared service across the whole company. And, you know, everybody wants to get stuff on the digital channels. And so we have to manage and organize that as well. There's a lot of breadth to that. And, you know, we work with almost everybody within the organization at some point. Wow. Yeah. That was my first thought was like, wow, that's a lot of things packed into one role and packed into one unit. Could you tell us a little bit about where this sits in terms of like team size and your co-marketers and your maybe your direct reports in at Checkpoint who are kind of coalesced around what you're doing here? Yeah, I mean, that has really been interesting. So I've been, my background, I've been doing digital marketing for 20 plus years, so quite a long time. 
And in some of my previous roles, I would have a team of up to a hundred people to manage this type of process, supply chain, ecosystems. I have a much smaller team these days. At Checkpoint, it's very, very lean. I think there's 15 people on my team, right? Covering all this. And one of the ways to achieve that at scale these days to manage this whole organization is through the use of technology and automation, right? So I don't think that you need these 100-person teams anymore. You can really achieve so much in scale through a lot of different solutions that are offered today, but primarily through technology, business process automation, and those areas. Now, when I first joined Checkpoint, there was no technology and there was no automation, virtually no. We ran everything through basically human middleware. And so a big part of what I've tried to do is change that to focus more on automating the processes where we can. So let's dig into it. Let's dig into the technology piece. What does your tech stack look like that you're able to automate so much with such a Yeah. Well, so when I first joined Checkpoint, there was really no marketing technology. I mean, if we were using free tools, if they were available, and the only real largest application or enterprise application that we were, that we had was Marketo. And even that was fairly new. So I really had a greenfield opportunity to, to really build everything from the ground up, which I, I really like because if something is built wrong or not scalable, then you have a lot to undo before you can get started on building out some kind of best-in-class model. At the same time, it was extremely challenging to scale anything until we could get a better MarTech system and more automation in place. One of the first things that I did was to try and add some of the more modern technologies that that were really more cutting edge to help us advance quickly, right? And Marketo at the time had a little component called RTP, which is a personalization engine, right? And that was included in our contract. Nobody was using it. So one of the first things I did was start with the low-hanging fruit of personalization. Now, at the same time, Checkpoint was a very product-driven company, very large sales-heavy organization. And they had literally not done any work in SEO, maybe ever, you know, maybe like 10 years. So one of the first things I noticed was we weren't ranking in a first page or even second page for any non-branded keyword, right? So Checkpoint invented the firewall and we were on page like 13 for firewall. And internally, we didn't even call it a firewall anymore, right? But the rest of the world was still calling it a firewall. So, I, I mean, just starting there and looking at the brand awareness, because I, I believe Checkpoint had a really large brand awareness issue, especially in the U.S. I didn't know that Checkpoint was still, you know, when I first was joining Checkpoint, I was like, the, the firewall guys, are they still a thing? So, I mean, there was a lot of legacy stuff that needed to be addressed. And SEO was a huge one. I mean, for brand awareness. So... I'm happy to say that we spent about two years investing and focusing on SEO. And I'm happy to say that we are on page one right now for over 500 keywords 
that are very valuable to our business. And that is an ongoing process that, that we have achieved. And our traffic to our website, because of that, went up 700%, 7x over two years. Whoa. I can't give you the exact numbers because that's proprietary information, but the amount of brand awareness that that type of traffic generates is invaluable. One of the primary ways we achieved these goals was to create a huge library of what is content, right? So when you think about awareness, what people are searching for is, you know, what is a firewall? What is network security? What is endpoint? So we created this kind of Wikipedia style portion of our website that was just informational. It doesn't try to be demand gen. Of course, we link to our products uh, at some point on those pages, but they're really just focused on answering the questions that people are asking in Google. And so that was a, a really good strategy for us. It helped us gain a ton of traffic. Those are amazing for SEO. Those are like yeah. perfect. Yeah, and I mean, we're not the first. I didn't invent the idea. <laughs> we, we looked at the landscape and said, you know, some people are doing this. We should probably take a look at that. We also did a lot of technical SEO work, really tried to optimize our pages. Google's changing their algorithms all the time. We stayed really up to date on that. We focused on backlinks from other high-value websites and sources. Another thing we did is we cross-linked all our pages on our own website. So we had a band on every page that linked to other related pages. So we created this matrix on our website. And that was really valuable in just getting the brand awareness and getting the traffic to our website, which is the first step in something like trying to grow the digital realm and, and importance of that, that aspect of our business. So I know in our scoping call, we talked about also quality, right? Because, you know, whatever we do as marketers, quality matters. If we're just, and this is this is an issue I've grappled with at many companies I've been at, right? Is balancing awareness with also making sure that it's not everybody's like grandparents calling your website. So could you talk a little bit about your perspective on moving from quantity to quality across all of the things that you were doing? Yeah. So first, I mean, you have to, so you're getting all the traffic to your website, right? And then it's, is it the right traffic? Is it sticky traffic? And are they converting into customers? So if I back up and go, even while we were doing SEO, another thing I noticed when I joined Checkpoint is that we were in the quantity game as far as leads. That means that, I'll give you an example, in advertising, they were being measured upfront on the cost of, of uh, cost per click, right? So you're measuring the cost of the ad itself. You're not measuring the outcome of the lead that was generated from that ad. You're just focused on how do we reduce the cost and how do we increase the clicks on our ads? I mean, it's a strategy, right? But in the end, it, what it does is it kind of creates a scenario that is not that ideal end to end. So, for example, advertising wanted shorter and shorter forms, and they wanted to allow personal email addresses, right? So you're getting this high volume of leads that you're giving to inside sales, but inside sales is getting leads that are so bad they can't even market to them, right? And you're just getting them quantity instead of the quality. 
And then sales loses their respect and their for marketing, and they, they don't really think marketing is contributing that much to their goals either, right? So one of the things that we wanted to do was, you know, the challenge there is quality and quantity are usually kind of mutually exclusive. Like if you, if you want quality, you got to reduce the quantity. Right. So the big challenge was how do you maintain a certain amount of quantity, but up the quality of those leads that you're delivering? And we experimented with a lot of things, progressive profiling to try and raise the quality. I don't think that's a really great way to go these days. Right. It requires people to visit your website multiple times. They got to answer questions every time they want to download something. And it just creates a kind of a, it adds a lot of friction. And I was all about how do we remove the friction, but, you know, increase the quality. One of the big things that I, I'm a big proponent of removing gates whenever possible. It had to be a journey within Checkpoint, though, because they just really didn't understand how you could remove gates. We were gating virtually everything. I mean, everything was gated because that was the way that we collected leads. And it was just embedded in, in our culture. So I kind of started on this journey of like, how do we start to figure out solutions to remove these gates? And I'm going to bring up, you know, one technology here that I really like that I've been on a journey with that I was able to get into Checkpoint, and that's Hushly. And there's other similar platforms. But what Hushly originally started out was, with, and I, I have some slides I can demonstrate this. Maybe I should, should I bring up some slides right now? Sure. So for audio listeners, you won't be able to see the slides, but of course, Sean, just talk through them. And then for video, YouTube, and visual watchers, listeners, you'll be able to see what Sean is sharing. So you guys can all see the slide, right? Yes. Hushly, when they first started, they had this function, which was an on-exit a form abandonment kind of motion. And you guys have probably seen it. It's pretty common nowadays when you are, let's say you don't fill out the form, you go to a landing page, you don't fill out the form, you go to close your browser, you get a little pop-up that gives you a preview of the content. And then if you do like the content, then you can just download it there. And the form that Hushly provided was just a single field email, business email form. And then what they would do is they would use these third-party data services to do back-end form enrichment. And so you're really removing a lot of friction here right away. You're maybe showing them a large form, but then on the preview, you're showing them this a single field. Just give us your email. So this, for us, we started doing this across all our Marketo landing pages. And consistently, we saw a 60% lift, which is a really good lift for a Marketo landing page. But, you know, I still had some concerns about this because, I mean, from a user experience, why wait till I'm walking away before you show me any content, right? So, I mean, look, if, if when you go to a landing page, you're providing valuable information and you don't know what you're getting on a traditional landing page. And so here you're giving a preview, but you're waiting till they're about to leave before you say, hey, it's OK. We're good. Here's what you were going to get. Right. So, I mean, it helped a lot, but it's not the best experience. But then later that year, Hushly came out with this concept of these self-nurturing landing pages. I mean, for me, this is still today our bread and butter. 
And it was kind of a game changer when they demoed this to me. So what this allows you to do is actually set a preview of the content as the landing page itself. So I don't, I'm not presented with a form first, I'm presented with content and value. And if I like it, I get to see it before I do anything and I decide whether I like it or not, right? And so I really thought this was a really interesting thing. And so if you do want to download the content, again, it's a single field form, but you can show people a preview and you can set it to as many pages as you want. If you do want to show them up to the table of contents or if you want to show them the entire asset. And then it had kind of a binge style Netflix, you know, YouTube style column on the side where if they didn't like the original content you presented, you could show them alternate content. I mean, this was such a game changer for us. And Sean, so you mentioned that it's a single field form and you have another tool that's appending the, the missing data on the back end. What are you using for that? Yeah, so Hushly actually provides that as a service. But we use other tools as well. So Hushly is one, but we also have Clearbit forms and Zoom info forms, which we are about to launch on our website. So for bottom of funnel, Hushly really works best with an asset behind it. But bottom of funnel conversion points don't necessarily have an asset. It might be a trial or a demo or a contact sales form, those are, are really high value leads, right? I mean, that is that is an automatic like four hour SLA for our inside sales teams, those. So we also have single field forms on those pages, right? And what we do is they're enriched in real time and the experience is that as I type in my email address, it's gonna append the data that are supplied by those third party data services. And if there's a missing piece of data, we show that field to the end user and try and get them to fill that out as well. So you've got human personal enrichment without the friction, and you've got backend enrichment in real time. And I mean, these are the technologies that are becoming standard today. I'm pretty shocked when I go around other websites and I still see these long tail forms, right? I don't understand why people aren't really using these. And we took this even further last year. So what we had was this single field form on these Hushly landing pages. Well, we put in a script. We use two scripts on these landing pages now. One is, if you have a Marketo cookie or ID, you're already in our database, then you don't see a form at all. We've already captured you, right? We just monitor what you're downloading. And also, if you filled out the form once and you're not in the Marketo database, but you filled it out once, we also turn off the form for 30 days. And if you download another asset, we extend it another 30 days. So if you're coming to our site and if you've given us your email in the last 30 days, you're not going to see a form probably ever again. <laughs> so the results of that, I have it right here. I mean, these pages convert 5x, 500% better than a Marketo landing page consistently. We're talking about a 25% conversion rate across our entire asset library, right? And if I show you guys the next slide, we use Hushly as our resource hub, which is basically the one-stop shop where we put all our assets. Now we still run Marketo campaigns. Um, there's some internal reasons for that. You know, we have webinars and registrations that are needed that are 
not really appropriate. You know, they're not asset-based. They have other use cases. So we still use a lot of Marketo forms. But for assets and collateral, I mean, we pretty much eliminated the gate. So what other capabilities are in the Hushly platform? So we we covered sort of the content library, landing pages, and, and shortened forms. What other things could you do in there? I'm a big fan of Hushly, but I'm also you know very cognizant that we don't get many tools at Checkpoint, and we have to really leverage any tool we have to the maximum extent. So Hushly has been really good about releasing a lot of features. Like I said, they started with the on-exit. They came with these self-nurturing landing pages that they talk about, these resource hubs. And then some of the other things we've done, I mean, this is the natural expansion, right, is to roll out these multilingual hubs, right? And this year, we're looking at rolling out these resource hubs for our geosites in 11 languages. And nine of those languages are going to be tier one languages, which means they're going to have almost every asset that we have in English is going to be available in these local language sites. I mean, you think about how much this expands our reach in a single year. Countries like Korea and Japan, where we do a lot of business, they do not speak English. They're very proud of their language. They're not really comfortable. They might be comfortable with technical documents, but marketing stuff really needs to be in their local language to get the engagement metrics that we want. And so that's something that's really exciting that we're going to be doing this year. That's a big pain point because a lot of folks do have an APAC, an APAC region that distributes and Japan specifically, which I know from working from several companies that have sold in Japan, does need local language. And it is, if anything, that could automate that is valuable instead of having to work with translators and a lot of translation. Exactly. And by the way, just a brand new technology that we're launching now for localization. In fact, we just kicked it off this week and we're, we're going to be launching it in the next 30 days is a company called Smartling. And I'm really excited about this because AI, machine learning, machine translation is making huge strides. It's still very difficult for marketing content but you can identify portions of your content that can be you know, almost 100% machine translation. Again, an example for us is the CyberHub pages. They're descriptive, they're Wikipedia style, so they're educational. They translate really well through machine translation, right? Marketing, you still need a lot of human intervention, right? But the time to market is usually, the delay there is usually internal reviews and discussions about what colloquialisms, how we should phrase things in that local environment. And there's sometimes there's dispute between the language service providers and the internal marketers and all that. So there's usually a lot of churn in between those cycles. And, you know, for us, it could be... So, I mean, if you go back to globalization, translating your website one time is really easy. Just a huge batch of translation, your website's done. But incremental change is a real challenge. You know, your website changes 50 times a month. The homepage is changing maybe daily. Those cycles are very difficult to keep and manage consistency across your global sites. I do think machine translation and AI is really going to be big in the next couple of years in this area. And so I'm really excited about what we're doing. I'll give an update, but I, I think we're going to be able to, to translate like Marketo campaigns almost 
you know, simultaneously with and launched them almost simultaneously with the, the U.S. campaigns. So I'm really excited about this new technology in machine translation. I almost worked at Smartling. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Years ago. I mean, I, we went on for like six, seven steps in the interview process. It didn't work out at the end, but I pretty much met everyone all the way up to the CEO. It's a really cool, really cool tool. I looked at him three years ago and I, I was somewhat excited, but it wasn't quite there. And then, you know, reviewing them uh, these past couple months, I think there's still some challenges, but it really has come a long way. And so, yeah, I'm really looking forward to, to that launch. So that's one way we're going to use Hushly. It's part of our translation expansion of all our assets and collateral. So typically you translate web pages, but PDFs and graphics, PowerPoints, things like that don't typically get translated, right? That's going to be a huge milestone for us. Sorry, just to be clear, they're translating the PDFs and the assets? Yeah. Oh, whoa. Okay, go ahead, So the, so the way it works, and I, I can get kind of technical here, is that you really need to plug in upstream when the PDF is being created. So if you put in... The raw and I, I we're in Adobe Shop for the creative team, right? They everybody uses Adobe uh, InDesign to create PDFs for the most part, but those PDFs are then submitted into translation workflows. So the U.S. while well, the English one is being done, it's also being translated into all those other languages, and it goes out for review. It's usually glossary, translation memory, machine translation, post-human review. And then back to the creative team for a little desktop publishing, right? Because if you translate into German, your PDF is going to be a page longer. If you translate it into Chinese, your PDF is going to be two pages shorter, right? There's, so there's going to be a bunch of white space or not enough. So you got to kind of adjust the imagery and do some desktop publishing. But after that, it's just into the PDF. It goes out to the publishing workflow and it goes out to their respective geo sites and into Marketo for campaign. Campaign running. Yeah. Hi there. My name is Sean Matson, and I head up digital strategy at Checkpoint Software. We use Hushly as our primary demand platform. We use it to remove gates, we use it for our landing pages, and we use it for our resource hub. And it has improved our conversion rate by 5x. So that's one aspect I would say. That's like personalizing, localizing. What else are you doing on a personalization scale? Personalization is like a little, it's like a little heart of mine. I really love the idea of being able to deliver things to people. So tell us more about what you guys are doing there. As I mentioned, I was a really early adopter of personalization. I mean, I was using this tool called Insightera, which was later bought by Marketo. You know, back in 2012, I was running personalization on on a website at my former company. And personalization is very hard to do at scale, but there is so much low hanging fruit. I mean, I'm surprised I don't see more of it on websites, right? And I can get into that in a little bit. And the thing is though, you wanna do it so it's subtle, but it's contextual. Like, you know, content is king, but context is queen, right? So on the website, but there's, a fine line between personalization and stalkerization. Also, you know, there's accuracy things. So I, like if Wells Fargo came to our website, I probably wouldn't say, hi, Wells Fargo, how are you today? But I might say, you know, I might change our homepage to say, you know, the leading financial institutions trust Checkpoint for all their cybersecurity needs, right? So creating context without calling out that you're doing it is kind of 
the key, I think. And if you make a mistake there, it's not the end of the world, right? So if they're from the healthcare industry and they see that, it's not going to be the end of the world because that is a little bit of a challenge. So I'll show you some of the ways we're doing personalization right now and kind of tackling some of that low-hanging fruit. So I'm a big fan of Hushly because they do integrate with a lot of these third-party data platforms. We happen to have Sixth Sense, and I, I really like Sixth Sense. We're incrementally increasing our use of Sixth Sense as well. We we mostly were using it for website de-anonymization, not so much the sales side of where it does the intense signals and all that. That's coming up this year. But for website de-anonymization, it's pretty easy to, to use personalization to do things like create a recommended con, you know, recommended content section, right? So we do that throughout our website where we have these segments and you can see these asset panels that change based on various factors. It could be what vertical you're in or what industry you're part of. It could be how many times you visited our website, right? If you come the first time, you're going to see top of funnel, awareness, content. If you are coming for the fourth or fifth time, these might turn into requests to get a demo or a free trial or things like that, right? So we use this to map to the buyer's journey to try and create context. Now, getting this content teed up is the challenge usually for I that's what I see over and over the biggest challenge I've done some creative things I've swapped out covers of PDFs to be vertically centric but not change the content right so take a white paper and put an oil and gas imagery on the cover and show that to energy sector right I mean there's there's some creative things you can do there yeah it doesn't have to be if you're on a lean team if you have limited time if you have limited resources like you said, just swapping out a picture every once in a while to apply it, to appeal to a vertical is good enough if that's what you need to do, you know? What that is, even though this is low-hanging fruit, there's some subtleties here that really work. So the basic premise is what you're doing is you're targeting people by geolocation for a physical event. And the great thing about this is that people are coming to your homepage, and if they're from that geolocation or near it, they will see this advertisement for this physical event, which is coming up in their city. So this is really low-hanging fruit. Again, what we see here is that normally when we get people to a physical event, it's someone who's already in our database because we get them there through an email or a phone call or a salesperson reach out, outreach. But here, when we analyze the traffic, most of these were people that weren't in our database. So this is an acquisition strategy, net new names, and it's really powerful. Now, the subtle thing here is if you notice in each one of these banners we're using a cityscape from that city where the event is now what that does and people do not really pay attention to hero banners that much you know performance typically homepage they do not perform that well that grabs their attention it's just subtle it's just for a second but you go hey that's seattle and now i'm compelled to read what's on the hero banner oh, they're having an event here. That's interesting, right? So this little subtle imagery grabs someone's attention. You have it for a second, and then they will read what's on the hero banner. Now, that is really important to this technique, whether using in this format or another, but if a hero banner has an, you know, they always say content is king and context is queen on a website, 
right? So here is where you deliver the context. And it can be as subtle as a quick image that grabs their attention and gets them to read the content. Now, this can be applied to other things as well. And an example would be content. To do personalization at scale, content is usually the hardest thing. We don't have a lot of vertical-specific content or industry-specific content. What I experimented with when I was doing this was replacing PDF covers and thumbnails with the same thing. So if we're, we have a, an asset, a white paper, but we want it to be focused on the financial industry or oil and gas, we replace the cover or the thumbnail with imagery that's representative of oil and gas or finance. The content can be the same, but what we found is if you present them with a little bit of context on the cover art, that they will read the they will read the asset like twice as much. It's like they're twice as likely to actually engage with that content. People are so into. I mean, I think this is why it's the rise of community right now, and like why cybersecurity in particular. Like you really identify with your job and. I assume cybersecurity on oil and gas, you really identify with that. I mean, there's ONG ISAC, right? ISAC just for oil and gas. So I can absolutely see that the industry, the graphics and the visuals, just showing a little bit of, oh, hey, this is for you and your industry, not just a general shield picture that we cybersecurity folks like to, to use, could absolutely attract people. And that's amazing. 2x amount of, re- of, of clicks and downloads. Yeah, so they're twice as likely to engage with that content. According to the tests that we did, so we did a ton of A-B testing and multivariate testing on this to ensure that our personalization was actually worth the effort you know, behind the scenes, because it is a little bit of an effort and it takes a lot of planning. It's hard to do personalization at scale. You have to be very organized. Not only with your content, you have to make sure people aren't caught in competing campaigns because they might be in multiple segments across your personalization segmentation, depending on how you slice and dice your your audiences. So it's a complex and sophisticated thing to do at scale. But it's these little things that you learn along the way that make it so you don't have to be so sophisticated or complex and you don't have to build out this massive, everybody gets personalized, right? You can create these context points of engagement that will actually give you quite a big lift. That's a good comment on, on you know, resources and resourcing to be able to personalize. Because obviously Hushly has these cool embedded things that you could do to personalize. But in general, personalization as a strategy, like, Start with the industry so it's not a heavy lift. It doesn't have to be down to the persona and the industry and the state all at once. Like for marketers who are obviously we're all overworked and we all deserve a raise who are busy. It can just be that simple step of choosing industry to start. Right. And that has such outsized results. Absolutely. So, you know, at Checkpoint, we do a ton of self-service. We're moving very fast. There's a lot of people out there creating campaigns. I mean, I've seen where, you know, an ad drives someone to a landing page, but the content is completely different just because they're running so fast, right? So the ad doesn't doesn't provide the promise that it had. So if you someone clicks on an ad, it's probably contextual, something that was, oh, that's very timely, right? And then you go to a landing page and it's 
completely different messaging. Now you don't know what you're getting when you fill out the form or whatever. And, and so just making sure as you daisy chain these pieces of content that it flows and there's context all the way through. I mean, it's amazing how many companies just don't do that, right? A basic thing. So you don't have to get so sophisticated and scale this up. Just like, just make sure you're organized. Like just make sure they click on that. They know they're going to get, they know what they're going to get as much as you can. Let them know what's behind that click and then keep it for the reason they came there in the first place. Amazing. Can you tell us a little bit more about the self-nurturing landing pages? Because I love that concept. I love the concept of a technology taking someone through a journey as opposed to you having to build out a crazy some of you guys may have seen my HubSpot workflows, and they are very embarrassing to show. A crazy, insane, multi-step workflow, a 20-step nurture that you don't actually know where people are in that journey. You're just guessing, right? You're saying, we think it's starting at here and ending at here, and it takes 14 weeks, but you don't actually know. Yeah. I mean, here, I've just moved to the slide with our self-nurturing landing pages. When I first saw this, I knew it was going to be a hit because I myself succumbed to this. Everybody does. The Netflix binging. I mean, it just became a huge thing, you know, especially during COVID. But I was already kind of in that mindset when I would go on YouTube. I would get so sucked into YouTube, like so addicted on with the panels on the side. So I would go there to do one thing. And then I would spend, you know, half an hour and I'd be down a rabbit hole, right? This doesn't necessarily do that, but it does tap into that kind of, this wasn't right for me. Okay, let me look over here. Is there anything else that I'm interested in here? And we see about 20% of the time that an individual will convert on a non-primary asset, right? So this is great. Like you're showing them something and 20% of the time, it's not the right thing for them. But they have that side panel there. There's also, it's not in this picture, but there's more assets on the bottom, right? There's another panel on the bottom that also shows more assets. This can also be set up to be an actual nurture stream, right? So, I mean, I don't know how effective this is because we haven't really tested it enough. But if you send them to an awareness asset, top of funnel asset, be sure the second asset on that side panel is the next step. What do you want them to read next? And then what do you want them to read next? And then maybe the very bottom asset is a demo or trial, right? I don't know. Again, I don't think someone goes through a funnel in 30 seconds <laughs> reading assets, but who knows? You know, I think that's something that we could definitely experiment with a lot more. There's, there's a lot more to be discovered there. Awesome. One last question. Sean, of everything that you have done to improve, so with what you've, we, you've talked about today, to improve the ROI of your digital experiences, right? What would you say has been the most impactful? I would say 5X conversion rate by removing the gates. Like, I don't know anything that's driven up conversion rates like that. I would say the other thing that we've done on the website that doesn't have anything to do with Hushly, is focus on bottom of funnel conversion points and test the crap out of those. Sorry, test the heck out of those. You can curse. 
<laughs> and crap is pretty benign yeah, also. Get <laughs> the heck out of those and optimize those for conversion as well, right? So these this is mostly an asset-based conversion point. It could be anywhere in the funnel. But demos, trials, which are basically contact sales, those are a little harder. So we do a ton of testing on those pages. Something interesting we did last year, so we have a contact sales page. And it had a lot of content that was very kind of welcoming and friendly. Hey, anything you want to ask us, we're here to help. And, you know, what we were getting was about 50% of those submissions were support tickets, right? Even though we had support information on there, it was so welcoming. Um, so <laughs> I did a test with one of my colleagues here. We removed all that happy content. And all it says is talk to sales and there's a form. And then there's a big panel on the side with all the support information, hotlines, everything. That reduced the support requests by 90%. And now I'm getting people inside Checkpoint asking me to put back that fluffy content because they think it's too stark to just say, hey, talk to sales. It's too... But I, I had to put up the numbers and said, look, here's the before state when we had the happy content. Sales hated us because they're getting they're fielding support calls constantly. These are four hour SLAs. Right. And so it's a support ticket. Move that by. I'm sorry. You got to sometimes just say this is what you're going to get. You fill out this form. You're going to talk to you're going to be contacted by sales. Here's the support stuff. So we had to remove the happy talk. And just tell them exactly what you go here, you're going to get a sales call and it's not going to be support, right? It's funny how people, you know, everybody has an idea of what a good user experience can be, but then the numbers will show you and the data will show you something completely different. I'm going to give one more example. We did a test. So our internally, our product managing teams were always saying our landing page, our Marketo landing pages are not enticing, they're not engaging, they don't look good, right? So we did a test, they, they went to an agency, they put together this beautiful landing page It had a lot of content, it had a lot of visuals, and it was long, it looked almost like a, you know, like a web page. We A-B tested that against a very sparse, standard Marketo landing pages, which Marketo landing pages are typically not that pretty. The Marketo page performed three times better, right? And I'm not saying that's for everybody, but I think it speaks to our audience, which is kind of like a no-nonsense, like I just want to get my stuff, right? I'm busy. I'm cybersecurity. It's important. I don't really care about your marketing, rich human imagery, <laughs> and all that kind of happy people. And, you know, <laughs> so I think people still just want the information they want. So you have to, like, I'm going to go back to that example about putting the cityscape on the hero banner, something to catch their attention, but not something that's distracting, right? Because, I mean, when we did this really beautiful landing page, I kind of thought that actually it might perform pretty well, too. But at the same time, I wasn't too surprised when the Marketo page performed three times better because I just thought, yeah, people just muddle. They don't really like, ooh, that's so pretty. I'll submit the form. That page is pretty, right? I don't know. I think internally you think things are cool and you think I would like to see that, but that's not the, the reality of how people engage with digital content. Exactly. You did a test. You were like, okay, and guess what? Here's the actual data. Here's the result. People don't like this. 
surprise. <laughs> it defied everyone's expectation. Everyone's gut said, or at least the people you were talking to, their gut said, should look nicer, should be more friendly, should be more, let's put happy people, let's put a dog playing frisbee, right? Like that'll entice people to fill out the form. But in fact, like a blank page with just the form and like maybe some text a little bit is what people actually want or what people are willing to submit on. So that's another point of like, what was the most impactful thing we did to also help stakeholders internally understand our website and what works was we test everything, right? So if I would go back and say, what's the most impactful thing for, so internally to help our internal people understand what works in marketing, testing is really key. And you can't have too many variables when you A-B test, right? You need to test, if you're going to test, like I just saw someone in our company wanted to test two different ads against two different landing pages. Sounds okay on the surface, but the thing is, it gets complicated because that ad is going to a separate landing page, then that ad is going to a separate landing page. How do you understand which ad is performing better? I would say get two different ads going to the same landing page, then you can find out which ad is performing better, or one ad going to two landing pages. Then you figure out which landing page is converting better. But if you had too many variables, you'd be like, oh, I, I didn't know really how to analyze this and how to look at it. So keep your A-B test simple. If you put too many variables in there, it's not really going to give you the information you need. The other thing is don't waste your time testing things like button colors. You're going to get 49, 51%. Like it's not... <laughs> <laughs> Trying it's not that it doesn't matter that much <laughs> as long as the button doesn't say something offensive like screw you when you click it <laughs> testing a cta is you know learn more versus find out you know i mean you can do something significant there but like a red versus green button i you know i don't know like who cares that's funny awesome I love it, especially because it's so hard to get people registered for things. And this gives you a way that doesn't involve, uh, you know, outsourced or insourced or your SDR team or your sales team. I mean, obviously, they still have to do outreach, too, but it helps when the website is doing such a big lift. OK, I think it's time for us to play our game, Gianna. And Sean, what we do with every guest on the podcast is that we try to guess what you would be doing from a career perspective if you weren't in cybersecurity marketing today. Sometimes we fail miserably. Sometimes we get really close, uh, but it gets competitive because I like to win and so does Gianna. So we're going to guess and then you tell us how much we failed or how miserable we did or how close we were to what you would you actually be doing. You guys have no idea how many lives I've lived also. So I have a pretty rich background. So this is going to be a tough one for you guys. We can't pick what you've done in the past. It has to be something completely But I mean, I could have done any of those things. Is probably oh, what that's going to be so, hard. So it's going to be a difficult one. Okay, let's do it. You go, Gianna. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, Sean, I think you would be on the tech side of the house. I think you would actually be like a coder or a developer or maybe even in hardware developing things. So that's my guess. Maria? Wow, gosh, I was thinking more like real estate. You would be doing something in real estate. And I don't know if, oh my God, he's laughing. I, it's either bad or really, really good. So let's let's hear it. So that's, okay, so it's very interesting. So I got into tech by accident, but I, I did start out as a software developer. So uh -huh. I have done that. Yeah. 
sorry, I didn't start out as a, I started out as a graphic designer. I moved into software development and then I moved into marketing. So I'm busy guy and I'm super passionate about what I do and digital marketing. I love it. I love it. I think it's great. But I mean, I have a very rich life and portfolio of things that I love to do. So what would I be if I wasn't doing tech? I, I mean, it could be any one of those things. I don't know. That's amazing. I think it's a tie, right, Jana? I think it's a tie. And that is very good. Yeah. Thank you. We we did good. I mean, I mean, there was like a ninety percent chance we would have hit anything. Yeah, exactly. That's why I was saying like you could have, you know, you could have said. I mean, pilot, air pilot is probably one. I don't have my pilot's license, but not yet, not yet. But you probably will. <laughs> it's not over yet. Awesome. Well, this was an amazing conversation. Thank you, Sean, so much for joining us. The slides will be available to those in the show notes, to those who want to see the examples and all the amazing campaigns that you've run. It's really awesome to see what you can actually achieve with very little uh, team resources. So thank you all so much for listening. Remember, there's a new episode that drops every Wednesday. Don't forget to subscribe. Give us as many stars as you can. And thanks for being a listener today. It was my pleasure, too. Thank you guys for so much for having me. Thank you, Sean.